0: All right, we are in Matthew 5, 5 and 6 tonight, Matthew 5, 5 and 6, you have any questions about any of the uh, Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount discussions that we've had thus far? Anything that's troubling you, bothering you, uh, nagging at you that you just like to get off your chest tonight or You know I was encouraged last week uh, Don last Thursday was telling me that he'd been thinking about being was it poor in spirit that you were talking about that had eaten at you all day long And I said well, that's that's what we want um, same in traffic you were in traffic <laughs> struggling with poor in spirit uh, that's a good place to be right I kind of did the same thing intentionally this week after having that conversation with him you know thinking about uh, in daily walk, in daily uh, activities, uh, going through these Beatitudes and, and even through the unfurling that is the uh, Sermon on the Mount, how, this, how we should be looking and uh, adjusting our lives here. So, for instance, this week my prayer has been, Lord, I want to be meek today. I want, to, I want meekness to uh, characterize who I am today. And uh, and you know, we're not meek, are we? Very often. We're not really meek. And so we're going to talk about that and unpack that a little bit tonight. What would be meek? Well, we're, we're going to unpack that, so uh, you'll be able to answer that when you leave tonight. I hope. Alright? So, basically we're talking about meekness, we're talking about blessedness and righteousness tonight. Lumping these two verses together. Because it says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Straightforward, simple, uh, concise, and yet there's a, a world of meaning packed into this. John Piper said that the most important question to ask of every beatitude is this. What does this beatitude have to do with God? What does this beatitude have to do with God? So, in that that line of thinking, what does meekness have to do with God? It's okay to answer if you've got an answer. means submitting. Submitting, okay. What does meekness have to do with God? So you're saying that the meek submit to God. Okay. What does meekness have to do with God? Have I read some place in the Bible where it talked about a man who and he turned his head and he like the other way and he turned his head and he like the other way mm-hmm. He's, and he just allowed and took flat. Right. he turned the other cheek yeah, yeah. do you know why I'm talking about it? yeah so basically this would be no retaliation yeah and, and that stuck with me. That's all I think of that. Good, yeah. yeah, Quietness. Quietness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we know... Already from our our study that the Sermon on the Mount describes Christ followers. This this is uh, Christ followers in full bloom. Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus is giving this, He's saying, this is what kingdom people look like. Okay? This is what people who profess and follow Christ should look like. People who reflect the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, they look like Christ. They're Christ-like. They're conformed to Christ. These people glorify God. They bring glory to God. We've talked about counterculture, being counterculture, being distinct from our culture, being different. So that when the world looks at us, they they are compelled to understand and know that we're different from what they normally see. You know, that we act and and behave differently. A life patterned after the sermon on the mount displays the exceeding value of God. What does that mean? A life patterned after the Sermon on the Mount displays the value, the exceeding, the great value of God. Well, this is when we when we submit ourselves unto the Lord's plan, I mean that that is affirmation. That's a display of, of the value of God right that we value who God is this is what God has said do this is who I want you to be this is what I want you to look like we're complying with that we're giving ourselves over to that we're affirming the exceeding value that belongs to God when people thumb their nose people who profess Christ and go out and live lives that essentially thumb their nose at God are not valuing God are they I mean they're bringing they're bringing reproach I mean, we've all had instances of that. We all have testimonies we can refer to of people who claim to be Christians. They've been baptized, they're church members, all those kind of things. But when they're outside the walls of the church, they live like the devil. And, and other people know that. And so they bring reproach on the name of Christ. So they are devaluing God's greatness by the way they, by the way they conduct themselves, right? So what does meekness have to do with God? Some people may demonstrate meekness like behavior or attitudes, uh, and they do so for different reasons. Some of them may be because they were oppressed or beaten down as children. They, they were raised in an oppressive environment that, that made them act meek or you know, with, with, with a certain um, lack of confidence or boldness, uh, timidity those kind of things. Some of them, they learn it at home because their parents had that personality. And so they learned that as they uh, grew up in that environment, right? Others, maybe it's something wired in their DNA. They just come out there, they kind of display a more timid, shy, and, and we label that as meekness, right? Or maybe in these instances... How would, God, how, would the, how would meekness draw attention to God's glory in these instances? Let's say somebody has, has become meek-like in their behavior because they were abused as a child or because they learned it watching their parents. They naturally assumed it. Or it was wired into their DNA somehow and they're just born with that personality. How does that display the glory of God? Or does it? doesn't does it no because it's a natural tendency and we've said that these things from the Sermon on the Mount are not about natural tendencies are they they're they're fueled and formed and and, uh, manifested by the power of the Spirit of God in a believer just like spiritual gifts are so are these attributes or these characteristics that we see mentioned here from the Sermon on the Mount now, Jesus is most likely alluding in this, in this teaching to uh, Psalm 37. So if you want to look over there, I want to show you some things. You know, that's something that's greatly underestimated and underappreciated in our churches and in our teaching. is how much of a connection there is often in the New Testament with something that was an Old Testament teaching. You know, in fact, a lot of times we see the New Testament writers quote things from the Old Testament, right? And Jesus, a lot of his teaching, you find that it flows out of Old Testament um, writings. So in in Psalm 37, verses 5 through 8 particularly, let's look at those first. He says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Now, He mentions some things here that are evident in this passage. Uh, They trust in the Lord. They believe the Lord is for them and not against them. They commit themselves to the Lord. This term that he says in verse 5, commit your way, literally means to roll over onto. To roll over onto. So, um, if you were, you know, hurt. If you're hurt and lying out and someone uh, lays one of those straight boards, you know, down beside you. And they may pick you up or your injuries may dictate that you just simply roll over onto that board so that you can be lifted and carried away, right? That's kind of the picture here is that when you commit your way to the Lord, you roll over onto the Lord, you know, off of self-dependence, self-understanding, self-obsession, self-deliverance, all the things that we're, or anything else that we're depending upon, we roll all of our concerns, all of our trust over onto the Lord. We commit our way to the Lord believing that we are insufficient and incapable and He is completely sufficient. Uh, These people are quiet before the Lord and wait for Him. They trust, they commit, they wait for His deliverance and His provision. They don't fret or stew over the wicked. Isn't this a hard one? They don't stew or fret over the wicked who seem to be prospering. When you read through the Psalms, you hear David very often with some of his imprecatory psalms where he's you know god kill these people god do something to these people you know he's looking for vengeance he's looking for retaliation he's he's angry he's hurt he's wounded and usually he comes full circle back around and he's repentant and you know but we see we see david with full emo, full emotions on display you know with all his frustrations and trials and troubles but those that are meek the meek wait for the Lord. And they, they do not fret or stew over the wicked. So the meek wait for the Lord. So we say, who are they? Meek wait for God. This is so un-American. Right? What What is our, you know, one of our... Uh, mottos that we have is that you know we, you know we fix things, we jerk ourselves up by the bootstraps. We're self-made people that we're independent spirits, and we we thrive and and take pride in that to a certain degree. But the meek learn to wait for God. They learn to commit and roll themselves over to God and wait for God. And it is so hard. Listen. more than 30 years as a pastor, I can tell you that the hardest thing for Christian people to do is to wait for God. Wait for God. We had a situation um, a few years ago uh, where, Don, you'll remember this, where we had uh, someone that we were bringing in uh, on staff that had a house somewhere else and we had people who got worried about it because it hadn't sold and they thought, They wanted to get a little group of guys, business guys, together, and they were going to buy that house, and they were going to fix it up and sell it. And they got frustrated with me because I said, Whoa, 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 whoa. You know Why why are you rushing in and trying to fix something that God has obviously known was going to happen if he's called this guy here and bringing him here, and he knew he had a house there, and you know that you're getting ready to blow up something God's doing in this guy's life or in somebody else's life? You know, because you want to ride in and be the hero and fix it? But that's how we function mentally, you know? And to their credit, they said, well, okay, we won't do it. And God worked in a great way, didn't he? God worked in a great way. God sold the house when God was ready to sell the house. And he blessed the man and his family through the sale of that house in, in an incredible way. The question I ask, I said, what happens when you sell the house and you make more off of it than he wanted? Are you going to cut him in on it or is it going to be your profits? You see you see how convoluted it gets? But when you wait on God to do it, God handles all that stuff the way he wants to. The meek wait for the Lord. He, we, we need to look at, you know, the Bible says, in fact, let's just look there. All right, we'll go to Numbers. Numbers chapter 12. This is maybe one of those places that's kind of obscure and you're not really familiar with it. Or maybe you remember some of the highlights, but not the whole thing. Miriam and Aaron, you know, oppose Moses. Verse 1 Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman. Moses', Moses first wife has died, Sapporah has, has died. And so Moses is about to remarry. And he's going to marry a woman who is... This is a racial issue. This is a racial conflict that occurs. Aaron and Miriam, in all honesty, are basically upset because Moses is not marrying one of their people. Okay? That's all that's at stake here. When you read it, when it says Cushite woman, she wasn't like them. And Moses was going to marry her, so they were upset. So racism's at work. And um, whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman, says it twice. And he said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? What? Who's Moses? Why does Moses get to, you know, do these things? Uh, Has he not spoken through us also? I mean, we're, we're on equal footing here. And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Essentially, the Bible says here, God says, Moses was the meekest man to live. Now, we think about Moses killing the, killing the Egyptian and, you know, running from the Hebrews and mixing it up a little bit. We think of him, you know, as Charlton Heston going in there and let my people go. Well, we don't think of meekness necessarily. Why did God put this in? Look what's happening. Has he not spoken through us? And the Lord heard it. So you've got this contention brewing, this family unrest over a racial issue. It's it's completely out of, it's gone bonkers. There's a problem in the household. And on the other side of this, we've got some things working. But all of a sudden in the middle of this, God says, and Moses was one of the meekest people on the face of the earth. Why does he say that here? Why do you think? Because verse 4 says, And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out here, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. God's going to fix things. Okay? But sandwiched in between the contention, the conspiracy, and God reckoning with it, God says, But Moses was a meek man. Why does he say that, do you think? Just let your imagination run wild here. Oh, Sam, I didn't say you." He wasn't trying to do anything selfish. That's exactly right. God uses this to highlight the fact that Moses doesn't defend himself. Moses doesn't rise up and say, who do you people think you are? If it weren't for me, you'd still be back there in Egypt, you know, pounding sand and doing all that stuff. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even try to defend what he's done. He doesn't engage at this point. Meekness. God uses this as a great illustration of what a meek man is. That Moses not only was not retaliating. He's not retaliating, but he's trusting. Trusting who? God, which James said, submitting to God. He, his life is in God's hands. And he says, I don't need to defend myself. I, I don't have to get into this This thing. I don't have to have a thing with y'all. You know? God's in charge, and if God wants you to, you know, do whatever you're going to do, then you just do it. But if He's going to, you know, if He doesn't want that to happen, He'll deal with it. And I'm okay with whatever because I know God's in charge. Now, that's a hard place to be. It sounds good, but it's very hard to execute, isn't it? To just say, Lord, I don't care whether it goes this way or it goes that way. I'm trusting you. Whatever happens it's your will. I'm good with it. Um, it's hard to find that absolute neutral spot where you just rest in God, where you roll over on God and commit to Him. But God gives us this picture here of Moses, of his meekness. And God vindicates Moses in a very graphic and powerful way. What does he do? What does he do? He, I'll finish the story because it's such a great story. What happens? He, he, let's go down. And suddenly the Lord came to Moses, to Aaron and Miriam. Come out here, the three of you, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent. Talking about getting called on the carpet, right? And called Aaron and Miriam and they both came forward. (laughs) Can you imagine? I mean, you know. You had one of those situations back in school, right? You know, the teacher's gone down the hall to do something. And you're up throwing spit wads and, you know, generally acting like knuckleheads. And she comes in and she goes, Charles, come here. Don, come here. Did you ever get one of those? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Man, and you go, oh, boy, busted. Here I go, you know. God God says, the three of you line up here. And then he says, Miriam, Aaron, you come here. How would you like to hear that from God? Because you know it's not going to be good, right? And both came forward and he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I the Lord make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. What's happening here? Moses is being vindicated. His trust, his meekness, his reliance upon God is being vindicated right before his eyes immediately. It doesn't always happen this way, but God's doing it now. And uh, let's see. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was what? Leprous. Leprous. Do you get the irony? Do you get the irony? She was upset because of the Cushite woman's color of skin, racial background, and God leaves her leprous. There was no more greater outcast in society than a leper. Right? God says, you know, you got an issue on this? Let me show you something. I can turn you in to one of the worst outcasts that there are. Now, you know, he he redeems it uh, later on, but... Great, great picture, right? So, meekness does not retaliate, seek revenge, or defend. Meekness leaves all that up to God. Meekness is the power to absorb adversity and criticism without lashing back. Wow, is that ever hard to do. Absorbs criticism, condemnation, ridicule, rejection, absorbs those things without lashing back i mean you you want to right but what if you don't even want to what what if you can get to the point where you don't even want to wouldn't that be a great place to be yes Mm -hmm. yeah that would be a great place to be right i got a friend of mine right now who does ministry, international ministry, and he's got a guy that used to work with him in ministry that's giving him a fit right now. He, he, he retired, and he sent him off right. He did right by him. He has lavished gifts on him, and he has offered to pay him into his retirement. The problem is the guy's a, a power nut, and so he can't extricate himself from what's going on there. He continues to meddle in it. And and he's mad, and he's doing all kinds of things to subvert the work. And my friend's calling me, and he says, I don't know what to do here. You know, what do I do? This guy's threatening to take legal action on me if I go back to this country. And I've got, you know, I've got vans, I've got equipment, I've got all kinds of things there. And I said, but he's bluffing. You know, he's bluffing. And, and he says, well, I can't tell you what I want to do. And I said, no, you can't do that. Because that's what the devil wants you to do, right? He wants you To lash out. He wants you to go back and take it into your hands. You have to let the Lord fight here. And that's very difficult because you know he's in the wrong. You know? And even when we're not in the wrong, it's hard enough, right? It is for me. But that's the beauty of what exalts God. When the meek learn to wait for God and rest in God, when it's not the natural thing to do, that's when we are demonstrating the value of God. That's when the glory of God radiates from us. People go, how did he do that? If I'd been that guy, man, I'd have got out and pummeled that guy right in the nose. But he didn't. If I'd have been Moses and my brother and sister were acting that way, I'd have taken them behind the tent and we'd have had a come to Jesus meeting. Right? Because I'm older and meaner. I used to tell my brother that. I said, you know, you may be bigger than me someday, but I'll always be wiser and meaner. Just remember that. And it's worked to this point. (laughs) There's coming a day where I'm going to be a lot older, and he's going to probably take me to task. Meekness does not retaliate, seek revenge, or defend. True Christ followers receive the word with meekness, the word of God. James 1, 19 through 21. James 1:19 through 21 Know this, my beloved brothers: let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger; for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. What's he saying? He's saying be slow to take action. Be slow to formulate words and retaliate. Be slow to let anger rise up in you. Instead, with meekness, turn and lean, roll yourself over to the word of God and let the implanted word have its desired effect to nurture that meekness and nurture the trust that God is big enough to handle this God knows what's going on if I need to come up, it, come up it, then far be it from me to argue with God about it if, if there's one to be had on the other side of the equation then it ought to be God's call and you know responsibility to execute those details as well and I can trust him in that hard place to be as we saw with David David struggled with this all the time um In fact, the only two that we see in Scripture that probably didn't have an issue and struggle with this was Daniel and Joseph. You know, they seem to have been pretty good at it. Meekness is teachable. Meekness does not imply the lack of passion or conviction or boldness. So now, it's important to make some distinctions here. When we talk about meekness, we're not talking about weakness. We're not talking about a doormat. Somebody that's just, oh, well, you know, That's not what what we're talking about with meekness. Jesus was considered to be meek. Meekness is power that's under control. Authority that's under control. Okay? If there's going to be indignation, it's got to be righteous indignation. Meekness that's submitted to God can be bold, it can be courageous, it can be strong, not weak, not limp, Not indifferent, but filled with passion and courage for the things that ought to be driving us in passion and courage. Meekness is eager to learn and grow. It doesn't mean that there's a lack of righteous indignation. The world does not celebrate meekness, does it? When's the last time you turned on one of these gurus telling you how to succeed and everything, and they would tell you, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth. The meek are going to be the successful. The meek are going to prosper. When's the last time you heard that? Have you heard Benny Hinn talking like that? Have you heard, uh, what's his name, Robbins? I want to call him Tim, but that's the actor. Tony. It's Tom, Tony, yeah. Tony Robbins. Heard Tony saying that? You don't hear them talking about it. They say, basically, their contention is... Take matters with a strong hand and get it done. Be assertive. Meekness. It's power under control. Under God's control. Allowing God to work through us. Willing to receive what what God allows to come our way or what He ordains for our our path. The world does not celebrate meekness. In, In fact, for... These Jews in Matthew chapter 5, this is a stunning teaching that Jesus is giving. What were they looking for with Messiah? They were looking for a military leader. They are looking for a political leader. They are looking for a guy that's suave and savvy and all these things that's coming in and going to liberate them from the oppression of the Romans and everybody else that wanted to have issues with them. The Jews were sitting going, you know what? We've been been the welcome mat, the doormat for a lot of nations for a long time. When the Messiah gets here, things are going to be different. Y'all are going to be coming to us. You know, that's the attitude they had. So that's what they're looking for. And Jesus starts talking about, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What? That's not a path to world conquest, that's not a path to suppressing our enemies. That's not a path to getting retaliation to all those that have abused us through the years and robbed us of our people and our treasures. Hell, that doesn't work. How's that message going to go over in Washington, D.C. today? Ms. Pelosi, the meek shall inherit the earth. Trump, the meek shall inherit the earth. McConnell, ah, well, Maybe sorry uh, this will not be a political discussion <laughs> but there's there's no meekness there there's i mean there, there's probably some believers up there that are, are living meek lives I, you know but but as a rule that's not what is viewed as success is it? that's not the way to get things done frankly not only is that the case outside the church but the world so impacts the church that that's what we've adopted as well I'm in meetings with pastors and people all the time. I'm obviously in meetings and and around people that that attend church and everything. And and quite frankly, it's it's a little bit of a tug of war sometimes. You know, you think this is what Scripture teaches, but then what comes the peer pressure and all the other things is that, you know, you got to take charge. You got to assert yourself. You got to do this. You got to do that. It's contrary to what God teaches. Because we, even as church members, church people, church is, we look at leadership and say, what's wrong with you? Well, I'm, I'm trying to follow scripture. It says, blessed are the meek. Well, you know, you can put that in a sock. You know, we don't need you to be meek right now. We need to get this done. Blah, 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 blah. You know, the world system, the world philosophy comes in. The aggressor gets the spoils. The aggressor wins the battles. The aggressor takes over. That's what needs to happen. But that's not what scripture teaches, is it? Who we trust in? We trust in our abilities, our strengths, our power, or are we going to trust God's pattern, God's promises, God's ways? God says, "The meek shall inherit the earth." <clears throat> Let's think about a couple of contrasts. Peter, after the Lord's Supper, the last night, Jesus is with his disciples. They're out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus tries to get his disciples to pray. They're, you know, they're meek. They're weak. They're sleeping, right? Suddenly, this throng of people shows up in the garden. They've come with torches, they've come with you know whatever they need, soldiers. To arrest Jesus and to take him in for uh, interrogation, interviews. I mean, they've got bad intentions all the way around. Peter acts like most all of us would act, right? Pulls the sword out. Takes somebody's ear off. And then says, all right, who's next? Right? You, You get the picture? That's the first impulse. Pull it out take off an ear and say okay who's next who's coming next I'm I'm going down with the ship I got this Jesus I got it never mind that Peter's the one who saw Jesus walking on the water was on the Mount of Transfiguration with him all that stuff has completely gone out of his head he said but I got this Lord I'm going down we admire his passion and his love for the Lord but he missed it didn't he that's not meekness. Move forward. 1950s. Jim Elliot. Friends of his. Couples. I want to say there were five of them. Could have been six. I think there were five of them. Five families. Moved to Ecuador. Their passion to take the gospel to people in the jungles. Natives who have never heard. Cannibals. People who killed you you know and and so they go something happens they disappear they're not heard from everybody gets anxious they go to find them what do they do they find them they find them lying in a stream where they've been killed you know with these natives who had nothing more than spears and you know crude weapons that they've made jim and his team all had rifles they were loaded None of those rifles have been shot. Meekness. As opposed to Peter with warlike, I'll take care of this. See the huge difference. Elliot and his team said, we're going to trust God. It cost them their lives. Pastor, it didn't work out. They didn't get delivered. This wasn't a Miriam thing where you know they had temporary leprosy and then they returned back. No, but you know what? Those guys, their families, their wives stayed and still ministered to those people. How? I don't know. But through the grace and power of God and people who were involved in killing their husbands came to to know Christ because of it. The gospel impacted those people through the deaths of those men, through their meekness. That's an incredible testimony. That's the glory of God working through those situations. God says, you trust me, this is what I do. Elliot represents the God way, the way that glorifies and celebrates God, while Peter represents the aggressive human strategy. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the meek man is not proud of himself. He does not in any sense glory in himself. He feels that there is nothing in himself of which he can boast. Nothing. Nothing. Meekness must be characteristic of those who are to share His kingdom. We cannot produce this meekness by DNA, environment, willpower. It has to be the work of God's Spirit in us. That's why I'm saying that you know that should be our prayer. If we want to be those kind of people, you don't go out and will yourself. Look, I've tried. My human nature is such that I can't will it into submission to do anything. It's too. It's too powerful. It's too. It's too human. It's too sinful. I can say, you know what? I'm going to walk and be a meek man today. You know what's going to happen first thing out of the gate? (laughs) Somebody's going to cross me. And the devil knows exactly where the, the unlocked door is. He knows where the key to the door is. Hidden, right? He says, oh yeah. Let's see how that works out for you, Jerry. If I'm operating in my strength, I'm going to will myself to be meek today. And he says, well, let's see what you do with this. Let's see how your meekness holds up against this. And boom, before you know it, you're lying there in the mud hole, licking your wounds and in regret and guilt, right? Because you failed. And then you've got this cycle of, how's God, how's God love me? How, how can he tolerate me? But that's not how we do it. We submit ourselves. We surrender ourselves to the filling of God's spirit and say, God, you can do this in me. I'm weak. I'm miserable, I'm bent in this direction, but you're not. Your spirit in me can empower me and equip me to do things that are not within me to do. You can work in spite of my natural tendencies by the spirit of God in me, trusting you and make me meek in situations where I don't want to be meek. Where my flesh doesn't want to be meek. My flesh wants to rise up and get vengeance and payback in show you what meekness is. All right. Some, some cultures are meeker than others. I think of like Uno from Thailand. Yeah. They're just real kind, kind of meek yeah. people. It must be easier for them to be meek than other people. Well, they're brought up that way. Much like we were talking about, you know, depending on an environment, you may be brought up in an environment where you're taught that and so it becomes ingrained in you a little bit. But, um, But you can have pride for your meekness, right? That's the that's the twisted part of our fallen human nature. Yeah, look how meek I am. I did good there, didn't I, Lord? I was really meek today. Yeah, you were meek, but boy, are you full of pride. Okay, let me give you some scripture verses here. Sam, look up Galatians 5, 22 and 23. JC if you'll do 1 Corinthians 421 James Colossians 312 Stephanie 2 Corinthians 101 Galatians 522 through 23 1 Corinthians 421 Colossians 312 and 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1 what were the verses in Galatians verse chapter 5 22 23 Go for it. Be the fruit of the spirit, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Against such things there is no law. Twenty-five. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have uh, have crucified the sin, sinful nature, in, it, in its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, First Corinthians four twenty-one. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or wish love and spirit and uh, uh, gentleness? Okay, Colossians three twelve. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Okay, Stephanie. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. Okay. Meekness. Not weak. Strength under control, under God's control, that honors and glorifies Him, not our flesh. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. World hunger is a serious problem today, isn't it? We've all seen the commercials. We we know that there's people all around the world that don't have enough food to satisfy or to sustain them. We read in scripture throughout history about famines and things of that nature. I mean, we know the fam- great famine in Egypt that is recorded in Genesis. Uh, we know Paul was collecting money for the Christians in Jerusalem because of famine and hunger and things of that nature. It's an on, it's always been an ongoing problem. Physical hunger is a rather pale reflection, though, of a more serious hunger, and that's spiritual hunger. And that's what that's what inundates our whole society. Churches miss the mark sometimes because we get caught up in addressing the physical needs out there. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things, but... A lot of churches make that the gospel, and that is not the gospel. That is an avenue into someone's life to share the gospel, but it is never the gospel, okay? If that were the case, then Jesus would have been turning the loaves and fishes into bread every day, right? He would have been feeding thousands of people all the time every day. We see two occasions where he multiplied food and fed people because they were hungry. But his miracles, were he was not here to remedy our physical maladies. Because those physical maladies are what drives us spiritually to dependence on God. When we don't have any needs in our lives, which is the area we live in, which is a real challenge here for the gospel, the area surrounding our church right here, because of our affluence, it's very hard for the gospel to go forth because people don't perceive any needs. Now they have them, but they don't perceive them. Or they don't think they're that serious. Or they, you know, they're, they're kind of first world problems, right? Um, how am I going to get my prescription meds refilled that I'm addicted to? As opposed to how am I going to fill my belly? I mean, everybody's got enough food, you know, here to, we, we throw out more food than, than a lot of people in the world eat in a year. Um, the spiritual hunger can only be satisfied by God and through Jesus Christ. And I don't know that we, even as the Christian community, come to full grips with that. That that we have a world that's starving spiritually. We have a world that's in a spiritual famine. We have a, a community that's spiritually impoverished. And we have what they need. We have what can change that. That's one of the reasons we're doing Who's Your One. I hope you have your Who's Your One, right? And that you're praying for that person and that you're sincerely uh, looking at an opportunity, striving for an opportunity to share Christ with them, to share that spiritual nourishment that they desperately need with them. And if you haven't identified someone that you know is lost, then I would encourage you to start soon spiritual hunger can only be satisfied by God through Jesus Christ Saint Augustine in confessions said this he said thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless because uh, are restless until they find their rest in thee again thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee now a lot of people are in denial a lot of people don't understand or think they have this issue but it's prevalent it's it's raging around us jesus states clearly how this hunger is satisfied matthew 5 6 blessed are those who are hungry hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied i told you last week that order is important in the sermon on the mount the beatitudes that you have to be poor in spirit before any of these others have a chance of taking root in your life right that humility has to be there first Well, first out of the gate, we learned that the man who comes to God must be poor in spirit. He's spiritually bankrupt in God's sight and has no claim upon God. Secondly, we learned that blessed are those who mourn, who sorrow. Not sorrow over sickness or even death, but what? Sorrow over sin, over the broken, fallen condition. We talked about Jesus going into Jerusalem and weeping over the city because of their hardness of sin you know and the impact that it had the same thing with lazarus not weeping necessarily because lazarus had died but weeping over the consequence of sin that that's running rampant uh upon this creation this fallen creation third we learn that the man who would experience god's salvation must also be meek right must be meek this refers to taking a lowly place before god in order that he might receive God's salvation. These have all expressed man's need. Fourthly, we learn, there comes a solution. If a man will hunger and thirst after righteousness, God will fill him with righteousness and will declare him righteous. Such a man will be justified before God. He'll be be declared acceptable before God. And he can embark upon this blessed and effective life outlined in the remainder of Christ's sermon. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. You think about all the things that we're trying and attempting in this world to find satisfaction, to contentment. And we tell ourselves we do. Someone shared with me a very astute observation about themselves. They said, you know, me and my family, we decided to stop Uh, placating ourselves through money. I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, you know, when maybe you're not having a great day, or things didn't go to suit you, or you know, you need a little pick-me-up, what do you do? You get in the car and you go spend some money somewhere. You go out to eat, or you go shopping. Now listen, I'm not condemning these things, okay? But saying that this is what we do to cope very often with blue moods or down times or things didn't go my way. I go out and throw myself a little pity party by spending some money on myself and make myself feel better, right? You you know what I'm talking about, right? We've all been there. I thought that was a very interesting observation and candor on this person's part to say that. I said, bully for you. You are moving in a good direction. So, Rather than hungering after the things of the world, which we are adept at doing, whether it be spending money, whether it be the things money buys, whether it be the applause of men, whether it be the comforts and the luxuries that we experience in this world, whatever it may be, the, the success, the notoriety, the fame, the fortune, celebrity, all these things, all these things we find ourselves chasing, don't we? We we see it right now with our families That are setting their kids on this path you know we don't set our kids on a path to become doctors or world changers on you know as physicists or those kind of things anymore do we inventors Mm -hmm. we're beyond that now we we want our kids to be athletes we want them because that's where the money and the fame and the fortunes at right that's where you that's that's life-changing kind of stuff so we pour into them, we direct them down this path and encourage them down this path hoping they'll get there and we're feeding we're feeding the wind. You know, as Solomon would say, we're chasing after the wind because these things, how many people actually experience some success that way? There are some that do, but we've all read the tragedies of how those things end up most of the time, right? It's rare that somebody who does experience celebrity fame, fortune, all that stuff, that that it ends up being a good thing for them. That they end up being philanthropists and and making good with their success. A lot of times it wrecks and ruins their lives, doesn't it? We see it in the Hollywood elites and all these people uh, that are looking for meaning in life and not finding it. He says that the the way to blessing and contentment and satisfaction is a hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And not just righteousness, but the righteousness of God. This is not some self-righteousness. This is not uh, an impartial righteousness. This is not righteousness as the world describes. Hey, I'm better than you. You're better than him. Righteousness. We're talking about the holiness of God. A hunger and a thirst. But when when's the last time anybody here experienced hunger? Were you hungry tonight when you came to dinner? I mean, I was hungry. I, I didn't eat lunch, so I was hungry. Okay? But was I close to dying? No, I don't think so. I think i I, think I got enough reserves to keep me going for a little while, right? Most of us haven't experienced real hunger. Maybe in our lives, right? I mean, like going for days because you can't get food, not because you've chosen not to eat food or because you've been sick or something. But being really hungry, being, having that kind of desire for the righteousness of God, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. You ever been really thirsty? Been dehydrated, just you know, parched. Just, you know, would you be one of those people ready to drink, you know, salt water at the beach because you were so thirsty? I've been pretty thirsty a couple times. Been dehydrated a few times, where my body was just that thirsty, where the electrolytes and everything get all out of whack, and you know, you're sick as a dog. You know, it's a bad feeling. But when's the last time we had that kind of hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God? I remember Billy Graham saying, someone asked him, what's the one thing he really desired more than anything else? He said, you know, all, cutting through it all, what's the one thing that you really want more than anything else? He said, I want to be holy as God is holy. That's what I desire. I want to be holy like God is holy. I bet you could ask that question of, 10,000 people and probably never get that answer. What do you think? He's probably gave that answer because he's read it in Scripture, Right. right? Lloyd Jones says this beatitude again follows logically from the previous one. It is a statement to which all the others lead, it is the logical conclusion to which they come. And it is something for which we should all be profoundly thankful and grateful to God. I do not know of a better test that anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole matter of the Christian profession than a verse like this. If this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole Scripture, you can be quite certain you are a Christian. If it is not, then you better examine your foundations again. Okay? This beatitude... This beatitude, again, follows logically from the previous ones. One, two, and three. It is a statement to which all the others lead. It points to the rest of the unfolding of the Sermon on the Mount. It is the logical conclusion to which they come. It is something for which we all will be profoundly thankful and grateful to God. I do not know of a better test that anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole matter of the Christian profession than a verse like this. In other words, he's saying... This is really the true test of whether you're a follower of Christ or not. If this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole Scripture, you can be quite certain you are a Christian. If it is not, then you'd better examine the foundations again. This verse is very specific about finding favor, contentment, and blessedness. And the reason many people cannot find satisfaction is because they will not accept God's remedy. So, what what must a man do? He must desire righteousness. He must desire a perfect righteousness. And he must desire it intensely. That's what this verse is saying. He must desire righteousness. He must desire a perfect righteousness. A God righteousness. He must desire it intensely with everything in him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Pursue his righteousness with everything that you are. Every fiber in you. You know... Are, are all the cells in your body yearning and and pressing forward, yearning for God, for more of God? That's the picture. It is important that we know we will not hunger after, not only hunger after righteousness, but perfect righteousness. And if we do not, well, I'm beating that horse to death now, so I'm going to stop there. You have any questions? thoughts comments you can keep your rude remarks to yourself where are you back there bob why are you looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> I was looking